Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Well, I invite you to imagine, you might not have to imagine, it may be true, but I invite you to imagine you have a next-door neighbour that you know really well and you get on really well with them. Uh, you know, it's, it's the one where you each bring each other's garbage bins in. Um, you go on holidays and they mow your lawns and you mow theirs. So you've got a really good relationship. And uh, so your next-door neighbour invites you to a barbecue, which naturally you accept and you go along. And when you get there, you discover that he has also invited other people who you don't know. And uh, so it's a bit of a bigger social gathering than you thought. Uh, it's a relaxed atmosphere and you find yourself chatting to a, to a person who says to you, what do you do for a living? One of those stock standard questions that's pretty safe that gets asked. And you tell them and then they will ask you a question. What will that be? This is the some assembly required bit. What are they going to ask you? What do you do for a living, right? And here's their response. I work for the Australian Tax Office and it's my job to check tax returns to see who's cheating on their tax so that we can find them. What was your name again? (laughs) Now, someone obviously does this job and if that's you, especially if you're visiting... Thank you for not walking out at this particular moment. And I apologise for taking, out, taking the mickey and promoting the long, worn-out caricature, but hopefully we'll see that it will help you understand the sermon, I trust. So thanks for staying, if you're in that category. And if you are in that category, I can help you out if somebody asks you what to do so that you don't actually have to say, I'm an ATO taxation Uh, compliance officer, which is the real title, you could say this, I work for a government organisation as an astute fiscal guardian, diligently delving into the intricacies of financial declarations to safeguard the integrity of revenue streams and uphold the principles of financial responsibility. Thanks to ChatGPT for that. Or or most of it, I should add. I did add a little bit myself. Um, And let me assure you that the rest of the sermon is mine, except for the bits that I'm going to get you to add in as we go. Um, So uh, a number of you are studying at university. Uh, Some of you may be studying accounting and economics. And I'll bet there's not a single person in the room. I could be wrong, but my guess is there's not a single person in the room when uh, when I graduate... I want to work for the ATO. But some people end up there, so who knows? All right, I don't reckon there'd be too many kids saying, when I grow up, I want to be a tax collector. And today we're looking at a sermon or a a parable that Jesus taught about the parable and the tax collector. And you can help me out a little bit here. When I say the word tax collector, can we have a bit of a boo? It'll just help us... Go along. So, so let's try it. So today's parable is about the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
Oh, you guys are better than this morning. Right, oh. Okay, now there's something universal, I think, about people not wanting to pay tax. Uh, but of course, we should pay our tax. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And I might add, we ought to do that joyfully. Because all of Jesus' commands uh, bring us joy and are for our good. Uh, actually, governments are there for a reason and it's appropriate for us to take our part in funding the government. We might not like everything they do, uh, but let me give you one example uh, that, that's occurred to me. Uh, we moved to Port Macquarie from Sydney about four years ago. Um, and we bought the house a couple of years earlier and rented it out. We were astonished to discover that the rates that you pay in Port Macquarie are greater than those of Sydney. You would expect it to be the other way around, but it's not. And so what do we do to that? Well, we can, we can whinge and moan, but tomorrow morning a couple of trucks are going to come down our street and they're going to take our garbage away, and I'm really pleased they do. All right, enough of that. Let's turn to the Scriptures and see what's going on here. Luke 18... Verse 9, if you closed your Bible after Luke, after um, Ethan read it, it's time to reopen it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, gone too far. Hang on, Luke. Luke 18, verse 9, here we go. Okay, uh, here's how we're going to break up the, uh, the, uh, the, the sermon tonight. Um, firstly, why this parable? Why here? Why did Jesus tell us this? In other words, what's the context? And then we'll look at the parable itself. And then thirdly and finally, what do we do about it? So, okay, why this parable? Why here? Uh, in one way, it's actually easy to answer the question, isn't it? Luke tells us in verse 9. <clears throat> he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Do you notice that Jesus... Uh, sorry, that Luke says he also told this parable? Is that the word also there? If you, if you look back to chapter 18, verse 1, uh, it says, And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they should always, they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, that's a good thing to do. You ought to do that. You ought to keep praying. Janice, thanks for that story. Uh, this is not in my notes because I didn't know about it until you did. Um, isn't it wonderful to see God answering prayer? And so we ought to do that. We ought to keep praying and we ought to be consistent in prayer. Don't give up. That's what that parable's about, but that's not the parable we're looking at tonight. This uh, Chapter 18 sits in, in a whole uh, sequence of teaching that begins in chapter 16 about how to be in the kingdom of God, what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And here we're looking at what do people do where in the, in the kingdom of God will they pray? And so we ought to pray and not give up. And in this parable, what we're seeing is Jesus contrasting two people in prayer and we see their hearts, the hearts of the prayers uh, contrasted. Uh, in many ways, this parable is really simple. There are only two people in it. The Pharisee and the tax collector. Oh. That's better. Thank you. Finally. Okay. Um, now, if you were here last week uh, and we had the parable of the unforgiving servant, um, uh, there were seven people or things 
that we had to consider who they were and why they were in the parable. We had the king, we had the servant, we had the 10,000 talents, which translated to a trillion dollars, the guy who owned the, 10, the 100 denarii, the denarii itself, the fellow servants who dobbed him into the king and to finish it off the jailers. We had all that lot, but here we've only got the two. I hope I didn't miss anyone, but here we've only got the two. I'm not saying them again. Uh, as we go through the parable, I hope you're going to see that being in God's kingdom is not about rules, it's about relationship. That's what I'm hoping you'll see. Now, the Pharisees get a bad rap in the Bible. But if you lived in first century Palestine, they were actually good people. I mean, really good people. You'd be happy to have a Pharisee as your next door neighbour. They would be the, like the guy I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. He'd bring in the bins. He'd empty your letterbox. He'd invite you to parties. They were great guys. In fact, because they're so great, maybe when I say the word Pharisee, we ought to give them a yay. Yay. Good old Pharisees. They've probably never got a yay before, but here's their chance. Okay, let's get stuck into the parable and itself about the two men who went up to the temple to pray, the Pharisee, and the tax collector. Yeah. Right, I follow along. Luke chapter 11, we're in verse 11. Uh, sorry, Luke chapter 18, uh, uh, verse 11. You ready? This guy, standing by himself, prayed this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. I'll just stop there. Um, because... So far, this prayer is actually not too bad, in a way. I mean, it's true. He would not have been any of those things. He would have been honest in his business dealings. You could trust him. He'd be true to his word. Justice was important to him. He wouldn't rip you off. Uh, he would have been faithful in his marriage. And he's right to thank God that he was protected from all of that, as we are. You see, there by the grace of God go any of us. There is no sin that is beyond us, given the right, or should I say wrong, circumstances. And I reckon most of us could and should pray a prayer like the Pharisee. It's a delayed reaction, isn't it? It's, yeah, okay. But can I just say before moving on that if you are an extortioner or unjust or an adulterer, I do urge you to stop and pray a different prayer, one of repentance. That would be appropriate. Now, while the prayer might be okay so far, if we take a closer look, there's a problem of it. Look at verse 11 again. Notice he's standing by himself. People came to pray at the temple at specific times of the day. Uh, in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, we're told that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, the day starts at 6 a.m., so they're at the ninth hour. When I did the sermon this morning, I asked the kids to tell me what was the time of prayer if the day starts at 6 a.m. and it went to the ninth hour and not one of them could tell me it was 3 p.m. Oh, good. That's, I'm, pleased, I'm pleased about that. Okay, so it's three o'clock in the afternoon. See, the parable is set at a time when lots of people would be at prayer. And if you look at it closely, this Pharisee 
isn't praying a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a statement of how great he is. It's a statement of self-righteousness. So I'm not sure we should be giving the Pharisee a yay. No, I don't think we should be giving the Pharisee... So get the change? So you get the change of where we're headed here? Okay, we, maybe we don't give the Pharisee a yay anymore. Let, let's, let's just hold our, our thinking here and see what happens as we go. So we'll stop cheering for him for now. Um, but of course we need to keep booing the tax collector. Yeah, good, okay. Excellent. Now, the Pharisee is proclaiming to all around just how great he is. He uses the perpendicular pronoun, I, five times. Okay? I thank, I'm not like, I fast, I give, I get. Well, let's have a look at some of the I statements. In verse 11, he says, I'm not like other men. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that this bloke thinks all men are extortioners, unjust or adulterers, not like me. I am none of those things. Why would he do it in an English accent? He thinks he's so much better than everyone else. In Genesis 1, we learn that we are all made in the image of God. No person is better than any other. He was treating this man with contempt. And remember, that's the exact attitude that Jesus is pointing out in verse 9. Sorry, that Luke is pointing out in verse 9 is the reason that Jesus tells the parable in the first place. What makes people think they're better than anyone else? Probably lots of things, but I'll give you a hint of what I think the, one, the, the big one is. And I reckon it's money. You see, if I've got money and you don't, I can do more, get more, live better, therefore I must be better. And it's very tempting to think that way. We're all rich in Port Macquarie. And it's a trap that we need to watch out for and repent of if needed. Someone said to me this morning that the longer you are a Christian, the easier it is to fall into that trap. So you guys that are young at this, just starting out, bear that in mind as you get older. Well, let's have a look at some of the other I statements. Verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. Like clockwork, according to one commentator I read, probably every Tuesday and every Thursday. And I think in the back of my mind, I could be wrong on this, someone might know, that the requirement for fasting was once a week. <laughs> he does it twice a week. Okay, he's fasting twice a week. Uh, what else does he do? Uh, he gives tithes. Uh, he was a stickler for the law, and so he paid his financial obligations as well. Uh, Genesis, Numbers, and Leviticus and Deuteronomy all list various rules and regulations about the giving of money, the tithes. And this guy was a good rule keeper, uh, not only for himself, but as a Pharisee, presumably all those around him. But as we're going to see, that to be in God's kingdom, it's not about rules, it's about relationships. So let's turn our attention to the tax collector. Very good, very good. The end of verse 11... Verse 11, I've got the right verse. Yes. Um, at the end of verse 11, the Pharisee includes him in the list of people he thanks God for, that he's not like. Uh, the, uh, the, he, he says to him, I thank you that I'm not like all of these lot, even this tax collector. 
Big boom. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's actually a fair bit of hatred there, isn't there? You know, I, I, I'm, you know, not even close to him. Now, the Pharisee in the parable is not the only, he's not alone in hating this man for what he did for a living. Here's how the taxation system worked in the first century under Roman rule. The Roman authorities contracted people and they referred to them as tax farmers. You know how the farmer goes out and harvests the the, the grain? Well, these people were contracted by the Roman authorities to go and harvest tax from the people. So they were regarded as tax farmers, uh, not so much as tax collectors. Now, they literally farm people for tax, and so here's how it works. Let's say you owe the Romans $100. The tax farmer would say, okay, you pay $400, and if you don't pay it, I've got some friends that will come around and persuade you to pay the money. And what made matters worse was that many of these tax farmers of Caesar's money were Jews. A little bit of history. Palestine is under Roman rule, but before it was under Roman rule, anyone know who ruled them? No ancient history HSC students here? Okay. The Greeks? Okay. And then the Romans came. And now the Jews who were originally in the land, they're oppressed, you see. And uh, so for a Jew to be agreeing to be one of these corrupt tax farmers. Uh, so you've got fellow Jews ripping, off fellow, uh, Jews ripping off their fellow Jews. They were considered the scum of the earth, traitors, both politically and religiously. They were considered monsters. Uh, in today's world, think drug dealer or pedophile. Everyone hated the tax collector. All right, let's see how he prays, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Wow. How different is that from the other bloke? Remember the temple? is where God met with his people in Old Testament times. And in many ways, what we're looking at in Luke is through an Old Testament lens because Jesus hasn't died and risen yet. And so the temple is really important. And this man is in the temple precinct, but he's not in the Jewish section of the temple. He's standing far off. He is so aware of his sin that he does not even dare to come close to God. He knows that he dare not do that. He cannot lift his head. He self-flagellates himself almost in, well, in anger about his own wretched sin, beating his breast. And if we stopped there and went home, what a disaster is it for it all, isn't it? Did God hear the prayer? We need to know that. Well, fortunately, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. It looks like 
we've been booing the wrong bloke. In fact, what should we be saying about the tax? What should we be doing when we hear about the tax collector? Yay! He's done the right thing. Done the wrong thing, but now he's done the right thing. He's repented. He's recognised his own sin and rebellion. You see, Jesus is telling us it's not about rules. It's about relationship. And now we turn to our last heading. What do I do? What's the take home? Years ago, before I was a pastor, I had a boss who said, keep your wide ties. In the 70s, the ties that you would wear were wide. And he said, keep your wide ties because thin ties came in and fashions change and we'll go back to wide ties someday. It was a good theory, except he didn't consider the actual possibility that what happened, we went from thin ties to no ties. Never mind. But there is an idea for evangelism which seems to have gone out of fashion and maybe it's worth trying it again. It's the concept of the dialogue meeting. Now, basically, the idea of a dialogue meeting was that you would get a group of non-Christians together, friends that you would invite to your home for supper or afternoon or morning tea, whatever works, uh, and a gospel presentation is made and then people are invited to ask questions to the presenter. Well, many years ago, I heard what happened at one of these dialogue meetings after a clear presentation of the gospel had been made. And a fellow got up and said, thank you, this has been a very interesting evening. But I must say that I have been a good provider to my family. Honest in business, loving to all my children, I have been faithful to my wife and I am certain that on the day of judgment, all will be well with me. And this was greeted by some nodding heads around the room. The presenter paused and said, Sir, I assure you that if you were an open adulterer, you would have a better chance on the day of judgment than you've got at the present moment. And he said, that cannot be true. And he said, let me tell you a story about two men. And you tell me which one you're most like. And of course, he told him the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. There's a real danger. That story that I just told, or that account of what actually happened, was about a non-Christian at a dialogue meeting. It is so easy for Christians to become like the Pharisee. Boo! in the story of our life, and rightly to boo that. How quickly we can look down on others. How quickly we can identify the faults in others. It's easy to point to non-Christians and call out their behaviour that God has declared is not the way to live, but that's rule-keeping. If only they stopped doing those things, they'd be right with God, is not the gospel. And over the years, Christians have been doing that, trying to point out non-Christians, their behaviour. In my day, it was smoking. You'll know what it is in our day. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. It's not about ticking boxes. So how do you get in a right relationship with God? 
How does that come about? Well, the answer is not by rule keeping, being self-righteous. The answer is right in front of us. It's a prayer that goes like this. You'll see it in Luke 18, verse 13. The second part of the verse. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In the Old Testament, Ezra realised the extent of the rebellion of God's people. Never mind those outside of Israel. And he prayed the prayer that we heard earlier in our first reading. Let me remind you of what he prayed. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment, sorry, my garment and my cloak torn. I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God. I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, O God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Do you remember in the reading he was so distressed, he, he pulled out his hair. I can't really do that. But he pulled out his beard. Can I tell you, ladies, you won't appreciate this, that hurts, even just pulling on it. I can't imagine what it would be like pulling the roots out. But that is how he regarded his prayer of humble confession. Are we mortified by our sin? Or do we think sin's not that bad? If you were here last week, Steve helpfully showed us that our debt to God is so large, we could never repay it. But for us to be able to come back into the relationship he intended us to have, someone has to pay the debt, that $1 trillion debt. The good news is that the debt has been paid. It cost the life of God's precious son. That's how bad our sin is, that we would dare to tell the God of the universe that we know better than him. How does God answer a prayer like that? Jesus tells us in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. Wow, a forgiven sinner. Do you notice that it's kind of a bit weird? We can and should be mortified by our sin, but at the same time be overflowing with joyfulness that if we turn to God and prayed the prayer the taxpayer prayed, yay, we can say yay. Do you get the tension? My sin drags me down, but because I'm forgiven in Christ, I'm, I'm lifted up. Into the heavenlies, Ephesians tells us. There are two major dangers that people can make when it comes to sin. One is that they've lived such a thoroughly rebellious and sinful life, totally ignoring God, that they think they're beyond any hope of salvation. This parable teaches us that that thinking is wrong. There is nothing you can do for which you cannot be forgiven. Be the tax collector. Yay. Be the tax collector. Yay. Repent of your sin. Come to God for his mercy. He'll freely give it because of the death of his, of his most precious and beloved son. And if that's you today here, do it today. Don't walk out that door unforgiven because 
The gift of forgiveness from sin is right here because Jesus took the penalty for all of your sin when he died on the cross. Hallelujah! Amen! Amen. Now, in some ways, the second danger is worse. And that's the guy in the dialogue meeting. He thought he was like the Pharisee, focused on how good he thought he was. But Jesus is teaching, it's not about rules, it's about a relationship, a relationship which we broke and Jesus restores. Jesus' world's upside down, isn't it? It's not the big, self-righteous and powerful whom God will exalt. It's the small, humble and powerless. And all of us are powerless to deal with our own sin. You see how Jesus turns it upside down at the end of verse 14? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Forgiven sinners, raised to glory. Your worth and my worth is not in what we own. It's not in the strength of flesh and bone. It's in the costly wounds of love at the cross. Let's pray. Let's just spend a moment in quietness to reflect on some of the things we've been thinking about. Oh my God, we are ashamed and blush to lift our face to you, our God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. But we thank you for Jesus, that he willingly died in our place so that we can be forgiven. Please give us that sensitivity about sin, that it is horrible and that your son is the solution to our sin. Every day, help us to be like the tax collector, coming to you in the humility of our sin. Thank you that you exalt the humble. May we be humble as we remember it's not about rules. It's about relationship with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.